Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 7th, 2020, and this is episode 2598 of the Survival Podcast. And it is Friday, 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 time for the Expert Council Q&A. little update on next week. I will probably be running Rewinds. Thursday and Friday next week. I may actually do a Rewind Thursday and a Expert Council Friday that I can pre-do on Thursday because, and this is the last announcement, really big announcement on this anyway, if you want to come see me and you live anywhere in the central Texas area, you can come from anywhere, but central Texas is just easy. Um, I will be in Belton, Texas, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I will be available Saturday and Sunday uh, at the Mother Earth News Fair. And I will be giving two presentations. The first will be on hydroponics on Saturday. The second one will be Sunday afternoon. I think it's around 2 o'clock they have me set up for. Uh, and the Sunday presentation is going to be on uh, container gardens. And they're both going to be great. But I think that, like, if you had to pick, even though I'm real hot on hydro right now, man, the I just finished up the container garden one. And it's going to... Focus on container gardens to a degree and a little bit on wicking beds because if you're doing a container, you might as well do a wicking bed type of thing. But really what it's going to talk about is is the, the layered and successional approach that I use. And just in putting that deck together, I was like, man, I could I should turn this into some kind of an online course, ferret it out over you know another five hours and do a course on just container gardening. It's, it's, it's going to be great. And I'd love to have you come meet me. I'll have a booth there as well. Uh, I, I'll probably next week I'm going to put out like when I'll be in the booth because I'm not going to be there 100% all day long, nonstop, because that wears me out. We're going to talk about being on your feet too much today with Gary Collins for one of our segments. And I've learned that lesson over the years and taking care of my body. So I will be taking a lunch break here and there. And if you are going to be there and you'd like to maybe help out in our booth, uh, let me know. We'll see what we can do about maybe, I don't know, and I have short notice now, but scrounge up a T-shirt or something. Anyway... Um, With that, let's go ahead and tell you what we're going to be talking about today. I got a great line of expert counsel up for you today. Nicole Sauce is going to talk about vetting online coaches, success coaches, that type of thing, uh, etc. cetera. Uh, Doc Bones is going to talk about keeping sane during the coronavirus hysteria, and he's going to tell you what's the facts instead of, oh, my God, we're all going to die. And he's going to say, hey, you know what? If we have a pandemic, this is what you do. And what you'll notice is what he says about this one is the same thing he says about all of them because it's all the same. And I'm going to tell you one of the big mitigating factors in this that Bones hits on, but he doesn't point out. And it's something that I think a lot of people are not understanding about this particular illness, and it's why they're freaking out. Um, I'm going to tell you this. If we were reporting on flu the way that we're reporting on the coronavirus right now, as in every single time there's a new case of it, they were coming on the TV going, there's a new case. And every time somebody died, they came on and told you somebody died, People would be climbing a tree with a spray bottle of antiseptic and holding onto the top of a 400-foot-tall freaking fir tree, spraying antiseptic at anything that got near them in, if they were reacting to it anywhere close to how they were reacting to the coronavirus. It is a major overreaction. I think when I say that, people think that I'm saying, there's nothing to see here. Don't worry about anything. It doesn't matter. Uh, I'm not saying that. It is something to keep an eye on. It is somewhat worrisome overall but in general i think 
then it is a 99% chance that nobody in this country will turn off an Xbox over the coronavirus. Unless maybe somebody gets it. That person might. But in general, society will not alter itself at all over this. I know it seems crazy, but listen to Doc, and then I'll tell you that thing that he like completely covers it but doesn't point it out, and it might make more sense. What about dealing with a flooded desert? <clears throat> Because somebody did something somewhere that they weren't supposed to do, and now somebody needs to do something about it, but you can't. What? You'll find out. Jeff Lawton will tell you all about how to deal with that. Uh, ben Falk is going to talk about lessons from building a root cellar. He got a great question uh, from somebody. What did it cost, and uh, what would you do different when it came to building his root cellar? Um, Gary Collins is going to talk about dealing with standing repetitive motion issues. Uh, Pugliano, John Pugliano has a twofer for us. The explosion of Tesla stock. And the economic impact of the coronavirus. Officer Steve Wise is going to talk about the ins and outs of the 21-foot rule, and I'm going to I'm going to point out that they also know they call this the Toller drill. I'm going to point out something about this that like I just don't understand why people don't point it out every time it comes up when we get to this one. And then I'm going to talk to you a little bit about an update on my keto diet, what that's been like for me the past couple months since Christmas. Um, and where I'm at with it, where I'm going with it, and why I think you should really consider it for your life. I posted some pictures on Facebook today, and I'll link to them from the show notes where you can see them. You don't have to use Facebook. I mean, Facebook is a website after all. And if you set your profile to where it's not public, then people have to be your friend or whatever. I don't do that. I'm a public personality. So you can take a look at what this, what I looked like in July last year when I was on vacation, what I look like now. And I'm going to tell you why I think it matters maybe more than you think it does to you uh, when we get to my segment today. Before we do that, let me remind you, like, if you want to help support this show, one of the ways you can do that is by becoming a member of the Member Support Brigade. And if you do that, you'll get discounts to almost 80 vendors now. And I've been trying to do a couple days a week just giving you some of the vendors we have uh, that give you discounts that maybe otherwise you wouldn't think about. I'm going to give you two today, very, very different. One is O'Meal's. I have a great discount from you on it from a company called O'Meals. And what O'Meals is, is think about it like the part of the MREs that is the main dish, is the primary thing that you get in an O'Meals meal with a heater that heats up and it's, they're really good. Now, I, I wouldn't want to live on them. And I'm telling you, if you are a long distance backpacker, there's a weight issue. And I think that's one of the things that really holds O'Meals back from hitting the market the way they want to. But, for the bug out bag, for keeping in your car, for keeping at the office, for being able to make a hot, good, delicious meal on the go. O'Meal's has got some amazing options, and they are a discount vendor. They give you a great discount. And then the other one is fish newer. What the hell's a fish newer? Well, it's fish manure fertilizer, and it's blended up with little balls of clay. There's also a liquid version of it. This is from a guy in the Carolinas that does um, aquaculture on a big, big way. He runs a catfish farm. And he has developed a way to take the, the waste product from the catfish and develop it into a solid or a liquid fertilizer you can use in your garden. And I trialed it last year, and my results in side-by-side -side trials were pretty amazing. Uh, I've got you a great discount on that. That's just two of the more than 80 companies that give you discounts. So if you become a member, you can learn more by going to the survivalpodcast.com and clicking on Members. Uh, and seeing all the great discounts that we get for you. If you use the discounts, the membership is not just going to pay for itself. It's going to make you money. That's the program I put together. That's always been what I've wanted to be, something that, like, it just makes sense. Like, why wouldn't you do this if, if it puts money in your pocket every year? 
So check it out. Consider becoming a member. And if you're uh, military law enforcement, Peace Corps, or a first responder active due to your prior service, you qualify for a discount. Email me, TSPC Service Discount, in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences. I'll get you the discount code. And, of course, the email address for all things related to the show Jack at the survivalpodcast.com. There's no secret email address, and TSPC in the, the subject line will be the best way to make sure that I'm likely to actually look at, see, and read your email. With that, let's get into things. Let's start out with our quote of the day. Quote of the day today is by one of my favorite people of all time. Read everything the man ever wrote. I uh, had a lot of his books in audiobooks and listened to them when I was on the road. And you bet you think this is somebody from the business world. It's not. Carl Sagan. Uh, Pale Blue Dot was probably one of my favorite audios to listen to, to listen to him read that book and ending with that concept of looking back and seeing the earth as a pale blue dot as man had moved into becoming a, a space-faring uh, s s uh, species and understanding how small that blue dot is and then therefore understanding how important it is that we take care of it. Well, he said of science as a whole, Science is a way of thinking much more than it is a body of knowledge. Boy, I wish people would learn that. You don't know science because somebody told you something and you memorized it and you agree with somebody's opinion. Almost everything that science has to say is an opinion, and almost every opinion that science has ever had has changed. Science is about a methodology. It's about a way of critically looking at things and drawing conclusions and determinations based on knowns and estimations and combining the two. That's what science is. When somebody tells you, and this is not really about climate change, though it applies to it. When somebody ever tells you science is settled, that person does not, does not, does not, 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 not understand what the F science is. Science requires that we are always, always, always questioning things. That we are always picking at anything we think we know. We're always pulling at every thread. We're always trying to determine, is this true? And when we take the intellectually lazy approach to anything, that, oh, the science is settled. Bull. We have certain scientific laws Like we have laws of gravity. In other words, certain things will behave certain ways because gravity is there. But we don't even know what gravity is. I mean, if you doubt me, you know, do a little research. Do a little reading. Read what the brightest minds that ever lived in the world of physics and currently in physics have to say about what gravity actually is. They don't really know. They think they might know maybe, but they know they don't know. Any scientist that tells you that the science is settled on anything is not worth listening to. And any person who's not a scientist that tells you the science is settled is brainwashed and does not have any idea what science actually means. In the words of Carl Sagan, science is a way of thinking much more than it is a body of knowledge. It's not a group of facts that we memorize and regurgitate. And that's one of my big problems with education as a whole, that we take so much in, in the world of education and we distill it down to memorization regurgitation. And we consider that mastery. That's not mastery. It would be like, so if you look at, compare this to martial arts. If someone is going to take a martial art and it is, let's say, a, what you would call a hard discipline, like a Taekwondo, a Kempo Karate, something like that, that is a hard-form discipline. Um, 
they will learn a front punch, a low block, a high block, an inward block, a crescent kick, a a a you know a, a side kick, a front kick, a rear kick, a hook kick. They'll learn all of these techniques individually. And one way that they'll test as they move from one level to another within that martial art is the mastery of the individual technique uh, and the individual forms, like these 10 moves linked together through these 30 steps in this form, demonstrating a mastery of that component. But in any martial art worth touching, part of testing is going to be sparring, some sort of combat, because the combat never is exactly like the execution of the individual form. What school has become and what society has been conditioned to accept as fact is just learning the individual techniques and then being saying, show me a front kick. Thump. Okay, you can do a front kick. But can you do a front kick when somebody's beating the living crap out of you? When it's the right time to do a front kick. That's, that's actually mastering the art. And we need a much more holistic approach to how we approach science, history, etc. Because memorization and regurgitation is just the individual technique one called on. And that often means that if you approach martial arts that way, that ability to deliver that blow or that kick or that block will atrophy over time unless it's constantly drilled. And then it will still remain limited to when you're asked, you give. And this is what, you know, we did the show on Tuesday about teaching children at home, and it's something I'm trying to work with my grandson on right now. Every day he gets a new word from me, and he has to learn what that word means while he's here, and then before he leaves, he has to sit down and talk to me about it. Yesterday his word was fortitude. So when I said to tell me what it meant, he picked up his tablet and started reading the definition. Uh, no. No, we're going to talk about it until you can de demonstrate to me that you understand what this word means. You understand the actual concept itself rather than just be able to memorize and regurgitate it. I told him, I said, I, I, you're a smart kid. I absolutely know that you can read that definition ten times, stand on your head and regurgitate it to me, and even kind of sort of know what that regurgitation means, but you don't actually demonstrate to me that you understand the concept of the word, which is why we're doing this, until we can actually discuss it. Put the iPad down, upside down, so you can't look at it. Don't fidget. Don't stick your hands in your ass. Don't look away. Don't look down. Don't mumble. Don't cover your mouth. Speak to me like an equal. Tell me what this means to you, what you do understand, what you don't understand. Let's work through this together. That's the way science is supposed to work. That's the way education is supposed to work. And it's decidedly broken. That's one of the reasons we put together a show like this with experts so that we can break down things to a fundamental level of understanding instead of just regurgitating. Everybody knows that. There's probably nothing that does more damage to the American intellect than everybody knows. Anyway, let's talk to somebody that knows a lot and knows that everybody doesn't know. Nicole Sauce on trying to build an online business and should you, you know, should you consider using someone that markets themselves as kind of like a coach or something like that mentorship program, etc.? And if you do, how do you vet that? Nicole Howdy, TSB. This is Nicole Sauce from Living Free in Tennessee with a question from Alan. He asks, how do we vet an online vendor? Details. I would like to get into online marketing as a supplemental income source. 
with the ability to scale up. I've been following a fella named Kevin Michael Geary, and I'm thinking of subscribing or joining his group. However, I'm concerned about how to vet him. He promotes programs, which he's an affiliate of, and he discloses it, but it's not the cost that concerns me so much as the time. He admits that you're looking at six to 12 months to get your website profitable. At 62, I don't have a year to waste on maybes. How can we vet these people before we commit to them? Thank you, Alan from Maine. Well, I kind of have a two-part answer for you, Alan. First of all, coming, I'm going to come at it from the perspective that I, I tap into coaching services and like using them. So I don't think all coaching services are scams. But there are good and bad coaches, and it is important to vet a coach before you use them. It's, however, not any different than how you would choose your HVAC replacement person if your HVAC system went down. You're going to do an in-depth review of them and their materials and their process. Does it make sense to you? If it does not make sense, walk away. If a coach, they're never going to make sense to you if their initial stuff doesn't make sense to you. Take advantage of that free consulting call that's going to be part of most coaches' services. What they're doing there, if they're good, is they're assessing if you're a good fit for them and if they're a good fit for you. And on that call, figure out if they're doing that. If they're not doing that, they're probably, you're probably, they're probably doing like an off the shelf sort of system that may or may not work for you. Also on that call, you want to assess if you think you can work with them. You want to do the same thing in reverse. Then go out and look for all the bad reviews you can find online. Type their name in quotes so it's all of the, like this person has three names. Put all three names in and the word scam and the word a-hole. And the, you know what I'm saying? Like if somebody was going to go on a rant about this guy and how they wasted a ton of money on him and a ton of time on him and they were really, really mad, put those words in. And see what you find. And you're going to have to dig a few pages in to get beyond his own digital marketing. So, you know, and that is something. His digital marketing isn't bad, right? Like he's done a good job with himself. So hopefully he can do a good job with you. Okay. So that's how to evaluate. But then there's another layer. And this is for evaluating any vendor. Does what they're offering seem too good to be true? If the answer is yes, then don't use them. Because it's probably not true. I read a book last night about a guy who got a whole town in like turn of the century excited because he could sing underwater and they could hear him and he sold all these tickets. And then the whole town came out on a Saturday. He jumped into the Creek where there was a waterfall, went behind the waterfall and sang while under the water fall. So he didn't lie, but you see what I'm saying there? So you need to kind of assess it for that factor. Like is what he's delivering going to be what he says or is it sort of spun up? Does it feel like a scam if it does walk away? Can they provide references? Get them. Check them out. The best thing you can do is find a reference that had sort of a disappointing experience that can share that with you. And then you can make your own assessment because, you know, nobody's perfect, right? And then do they do what they say? All of those things are important. If this is all good, then you can go in, set, set sort of some sort of progress measurement, start small and assess as you go and grow. There's a part two to my answer. At 62, I don't have a year to waste on maybes. That's a much bigger problem, Alan. That's a much bigger problem. Online marketing for income is either going to work for you or it isn't. If you can't afford for it not to begin working after investing only a year of your time, 
you may want to take take a deeper look at your long-term plans and if something that risky is a good idea. If you're depending on it, find something less risky. That's that's just my good. The first time I saw your question, that was what I saw. In my experience, starting anything, though, on your own is kind of one big giant maybe. You can assess if the finances are likely to work. You can run models, and a lot of times they'll even be fairly accurate. But you are starting from null and going to somewhere, and that's a big maybe. So I, the thing I didn't really know is, do you already have a business or project that you want to market online, or will you also be coming up with what that is as part of this process? In which case, a year is fast. Here's really fast, right? And the other thing is, um, you don't have to commit to this person. You can start the process and evaluate. And after a year, if it's not working, part of it probably would work if it's a good program. Learn from that and move on. And, you know, like you're not necessarily committing for the rest of your life to something. You're committing for three, six or 12 months and then assessing. So it's it's like you use them as a tool to build your success if you need coaching, not to commit to some tool for the whole long term. I mean, like committing to a tool for the long term is more like I'm going to sell Amway and I'm never going to leave Amway. That's a totally different thing. And then the last I mean, I really think the last thing to consider is have you done digital marketing before? If no. Are you already using and comfortable with social media? Or do you hate it? If you hate it, don't do this. If you're one of those people who naturally kind of likes to be online chatting back and forth and can, is building a following, and you know, like, then maybe. But if you hate that, don't try to do digital marketing. And are you comfortable using online tools or do they frustrate you? If they frustrate you, think real carefully about setting yourself up for something that requires that you use them. I think really though, Alan, the big question here is what is your long-term life vision? What do you need to have in place to support where you want to be in five to 10 years? And how are you going to make that happening happen rather than should I invest 12 months in a digital marketing program that, you know, if it doesn't work is going to make me sad. Um, if you answer the bigger picture questions about where you need to be, what you need to have in place and how you can make that happen, that how is this program or it's not this program. And that answer becomes really clear if your bigger questions are answered. Jack has a couple episodes that are pretty good on this. So do I just about setting that big picture vision. Go back and listen to him. In fact, I'll, tr- I'll try to shoot a link to Jack to which of his episodes like really resonated with me. And it's, it's the ones about finding your passion. Okay. Listen to those again. Think about it and start with the big picture. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say, Alan, is what do you want to be when you, when you grow up? Right. That's a, that's a much more important question. Um, if I think if you're choosing any business just because it's going to be income, go look for one that's more likely to be stable income for you than sort of a a longer hard work shot like digital marketing. Anyway, I hope this answer helps guys. If you have questions, send them into Jack TSPC expert, Nicole sauce in the subject line. So it doesn't get caught by his spam filter. Also, I did want to mention we do a big spring workshop here in middle Tennessee. I'm an hour East of Nashville. We do a spring workshop this year. It is April 23rd through 25th. 
And if you're flying in, you'd fly into Nashville and drive an hour to the middle of nowhere where I live. On-site camping and food and beverage are included with the workshop. This year, our theme is grow. It's how to grow yourself, grow your independence, and grow your food. And we have great facilitators. We've got Sean Mills overseeing a solar water heater build. We've got Chef Corrieri and Leos from the Zello Channel and I are going to do a whole track on preserving food, sauerkraut, canning, making feta cheese, all the good stuff. Lots of food fun and networking. We're doing a crawdad boil as part of the whole thing. We've got locally produced bratwurst donated from a nearby farm. And then we have sessions on change your life one word at a time. We have how to use and care for knives. Guess who's in that one? Yeah, you're right. You guessed it. Patrick Rorman of Empty Knives is working with the chef on how, like methods of cutting that don't screw up your knife. I know it seems simple, but man, we had a whole session on that last year. People ate it up. I'll be going over how to get things done with my three things. Brian Norton, the CBD guy who was just on Jack's show, how to grow yourself, how to grow plants. Kurt Duggar, who just was in a paramotor flying across Tennessee last year to raise awareness of a veterans retreat we have here. He'll be there talking about his experience in his Dark Horse 450 project. Of course, there will be aqua and hydroponics tours as well as what's going on on my homestead. We've got a beekeeping 101. We've got a really cool session called Grow Through Hard Times with uh, three veterans that have taken on and are overcoming PTSD. Got Mark, Mark Alexander in on how to grow your side, go from homestead to side hustle. And Nick Ferguson, money does grow on trees. He's going to talk a little bit about that. And we've got J.R. Haley coming in to talk about how to grow yourself to have it then positively impact your life. This whole thing is also centers around helping you start your things. So we have something called Project Accelerators. When you sign up, I send out an application. People apply to present a project in like five minutes, the overview of what their project is and then what they need help either troubleshooting or help with. The whole group brainstorms and this kicks things forward at a fast pace. It's part of how Kurt was able to go from I kind of like paramotoring to I'm going to raise awareness of this cause and I'm going to go all the way across the state. So we've seen a lot of great businesses come out of this. Uh, you can find out more at livingfreeintennessee.com and then just click on Spring Workshop at the top. Make it a great week. So if you are anywhere near Tennessee or you just want to hang out with some cool people and you're willing to make the trip, consider getting out to uh, Nicole's event. I do have a link in the show notes today where you can sign up for it. I think she's got like five or six tickets left, just just so you know. All right, next up, Doc Bones on making sense of the coronavirus hysteria and what to actually do if we ever do have a pandemic, whether it's coronavirus or anything else. Hi, Joe Alden, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net with over a thousand articles, podcasts, and videos on medical preparedness. I'm also the author of the Survival Medicine Handbook's third edition, also Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide, and the designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Today's topic is the coronavirus outbreak. On January 7th, I wrote an article about pneumonia and mentioned a new virus that was causing lung problems in about 60 people in the city of Wuhan, China. 
It's now identified as a type of coronavirus, so-called because there are projections on the virus that looks like a crown, well, if you're very imaginative, or the corona of the sun. The family coronaviridae includes some epidemic infections that made the news this century, like sudden acute respiratory syndrome, SARS, and Middle East respiratory disease, MERS. Both of these caused thousands of cases and hundreds of deaths in the last 15 to 20 years. The speed of the spread of this disease is pretty impressive. From just 60 cases on January 7th, there are, as of February 3rd, and this is moving pretty fast, 20,000 people documented to have the infection, 99.5% of them in mainland China. Almost all the rest are travelers from the Wuhan, China area. These folks managed to infect another person, actually, in several countries, but no community outbreak has occurred anywhere else other than China. That means, so far, as of February 3rd, the virus, called 2019 NCoV, doesn't meet the criteria for a pandemic. Now, that doesn't mean that it isn't dangerous, and it certainly is a significant epidemic. Although four in five people with this infection develop only mild symptoms, one in five people who do get infected develop an inflammation of the lining of the lungs, which can lead to trouble breathing. Fever, cough, diarrhea, other symptoms, all sorts of things can happen to these people. Respiratory failure and organ failure and, of course, death. The death rate has hovered around 2%, which means there are far more deaths from the flu than from the coronavirus. Ebola, by the way, had a death rate of about 40 to 45 percent. Chinese officials are probably wise to enact quarantine orders, but there's only so far that that can go. It's never 100 percent. There is only one lab, by the way, called a Biosafety Level 4 lab with the capability of handling severe outbreaks like this in the entire country of China. It's located, coincidentally, in Wuhan. With the number of cases mounting in mainland China, people are staying in their homes, so it's going to be difficult, I think, to get an actual count of how many people are sick and get better. I would assume that if you're sick and you wind up not being able to breathe, that you'll end up in the hospital, but the lesser cases I think that we're probably not going to be hearing much about because people are just staying in their homes and think basically that they might be safer there. As of yet, no cure nor vaccine is available to combat this coronavirus. Treatment at present focuses on treating symptoms and supporting a victim through the infection, through maybe hydration and treating fever and things like that. There are two doctors in Thailand who claim to have eliminated the virus in a 70-year-old woman with a mixture of high-dose Tamiflu, the anti-flu drug, and two HIV drugs, putting these in a sort of cocktail that they gave the patient. And they say that it worked within 48 hours of using this treatment. We'll see if this pans out. The question is, how prepared are we for infectious diseases like the 2019 NCoV virus? I listened to a virologist being asked this exact question, and he said, we're down about 200% in terms of hospital beds and are short 400% in intensive care unit beds that would handle this kind of infection. Well, that, believe it or not, is a lot better prepared than we were just a few years ago. Before the Ebola epidemic in 2014, we only had 19 hospital beds in the entire nation that could handle a disease as infectious as Ebola, and certainly as serious. Now, most large hospitals have contingency plans for just such an event. 
Now, that doesn't mean that handling of viral epidemic here would be easy, and certainly not every country in the world is as prepared as we are, and that includes China. Their medical infrastructure is being strained to the limit. When a community has a crisis, in the U.S. at least, nearby municipalities rush to help. The situation which would concern me would be if many communities nearby each other are hit and each has to direct their resources inward to their own people and not be able to help others. This is where China is now, but the U.S. is a very long way from that situation. Despite that, it makes sense for everyone to know some simple preventative measures that will help get you medically prepared for this kind of scenario. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, and there is just no cure yet anyway. That means that you have to use non-pharmaceutical interventions, and that includes some changes in your lifestyle. Certainly in a community-wide epidemic, you would want to do some social distancing. That means staying away from large crowds, not going to work if you're sick or if a lot of people there are sick, keeping kids home from school, especially if there are kids that are sick at school, and isolating sick people in your own family from the healthy ones by having a good survival sick room, something I've written about on our website at doomandbloom.net. Avoiding close contact with possibly sick individuals, very important, especially if you don't have personal protection gear. Close contact is identified as being within six feet or two meters of a coronavirus victim or in a closed room with one for a significant period of time. An unprotected person having direct contact with infectious secretions, that also qualifies. That would mean, let's say, being coughed on. If somebody coughs on on your face or even on your shirt, your shoes, my gosh, and other surfaces. So the best policy, wash your hands frequently with soap and water. Don't be cheap with the hand sanitizer. And close attention should be focused on avoiding the touching of eyes, nose, and mouth. You'd be surprised how often that happens. Masks and protective eyewear, that'll help you avoid infection if an outbreak does occur in your community. But chances are you'll touch a lot of areas at work, school, or home that have been touched by a lot of other people. The virus appears to be able to live on surfaces for longer than the average microbe, so work surfaces should be disinfected often, maybe with a dilute chlorine solution. Work surfaces, by the way, include computer keyboards used by more than one person. You may not have thought of that. For masks, look for a supply of N95s. These are better than standard surgical masks, but not 100% protective. During outbreaks in your community, always wear N95 masks or better if you must be outside of your home. It's not just important to have proper masks, but also how to put them on properly, how to achieve a proper fit, and take them off safely. You can find my recent videos, Face Masks Part 1 and 2, on the DR Bones Nurse Amy YouTube channel. Part 2 actually has me demonstrating how to properly place, fit, and remove N95 and other face masks. But you also need to know how to do more than just properly put on masks. You need to know safe ways to put on and take off coveralls, face shields, gloves, and much more. Articles on the proper procedure can be found at doomandbloom.net and in our latest book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease. The book is actually about antibiotics and bacterial, not viral disease. And of course, you know antibiotics don't kill viruses. But you'll find the donning and doffing process in a section in the back of the book. You'll also find my thoughts on putting together an effective epidemic sick room in the book. But you'll also find that on our website and on our YouTube channel. 
This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. For updates on the coronavirus epidemic, check out our videos and articles at doomandbloom.net. Things are changing fast. And consider our kits and supplies at store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. So here's here's my thing, and Bones really hit on this, but he, he didn't really drag it out and, and put it in front of you and beat it up a little bit. I think that the, the death rate of this thing is much lower relative to total infection than we even think. And let's say that China's lying by half of the number of people that are dead. Instead of around 500, it's around 1,000 dead. Our, est- our, our confirmed number of cases is like 30,000. I think your number of cases is more like 60 to 100,000 or more. I think you're, you're in somewhere in the neighborhood of, by best estimate, about 1% death rate. If that, it may be even higher than that. We were talking about the epicenter of this breakout is a, a city with 11 million people in it. And something that, and I, I, I'll bet you there is some fear of retribution by the political correctness police or something like that that's making this more so than it needs to be. And that is no one wants to talk about the way people live in China compared to the way people live in the United States. And I'm not talking about, this is not like Ebola, you know, when Ebola was broken out, I was explaining to you all how, let's just be honest, a lot of these places that have these problems are complete third world shitholes. You know, I said that long before Trump did it, and at least nobody lost their mind when I said it. Um, they're, they're shitholes, and I'm sorry if that offends me, but they are. When you have shanty towns where human feces and sewage run in open ditches in between the, the, the buildings, which are basically shacks built out of tin and sticks, and little, like, you know, hand-dug trenches, and they collectively run to one big trench that just runs and keeps going to wherever cesspool it ends up, that is a shithole. Offended, whether you are or not, it is. Wuhan is not that. There's parts of the area that are abandoned there, but it's really not. It's a fairly modern city. But China has a much different viewpoint of family units and housing than we do. And it's not a negative, it just is. And so there's a lot more multi-generational families in, uh, homestead in, in, in China. Especially once people like move out of the country to the city, it's a lot more expensive. And you, know, you might have a, a, a typical uh, home the size of something that maybe a four, four-person family would live in in America. And I'm not saying dirty, filth, nothing. I'm just saying space-wise, okay? That, you know, mom, dad, and two kids. And in China, it might be mom, dad, and one kid, parents on both sides, an uncle, and an aunt. And they're all holed up in this little, you know, apartment that's 800 square foot or less, sleeping on the floor and stuff. And again, I'm not, this is not negative. It just is. Breathing the same air, etc. And the whole damn family gets sick and grandma dies. Well, when people are being, you know, in China, locked up and stuff with this, and if you disappear, you may not come back, and you, we don't necessarily tell uh, the hospital people or the state people that everybody's sick. We just say, Grandma's really sick, take her. Hopefully she'll live, or she died, come get her. And I think what we have is a, is a situation with a much higher infection rate than is being reported, Probably a significant number of people that it's like having the cold or the flu. 
And then the people that it really hits, we know all of them because when somebody dies, you notice. And the people that get really, really sick, we notice. And the people that get pretty sick now that everybody's freaked out, we notice. And now we have a way to test for it. So the total number of confirmed cases is much higher than it was, but I still think it's much lower than it is. And the reason I believe that is the sheer number of people who came to the United States from Wuhan province that have the illness. As though just being there was enough to get it. And the infection rate has to be higher for the sheer number of people who have come from there with it. And I don't think that, that it does... The people that want to either scare you or get you to buy something or get you to listen to them, I don't think they benefit from telling you what I just told you. So that's why I'm far less worried about this than most people are. doesn't mean that I don't care at all, but I'm going to tell you more than 8,000 people have died this season from the flu in the United States. 8,000. And I'm going to tell you that two years ago in 2017, 80,000 Americans died from, quote-unquote, the flu, with Dr. Evil air quotes, because you know when an old person that was on the edge of death gets the flu and dies, they, contrib- they, they say the flu killed them. They might have been dead in two weeks anyway, but they died two weeks earlier because of the flu, so it's a flu death. But still, I mean, again, if they were reporting the flu, the way they are reporting the coronavirus on your TV, you'd be up on top of a roof hiding, or you'd be up on top of a tree hiding with a bottle of aerosol spray. With that, let's go on to something totally different. Let's talk about a flooded desert. How the heck you get one of those, Will? Uh, when, you, when you design for a desert, you design to a flood. Because when the rains come, you do get a flood for a very brief period of time. We have to capture it all. But this is a different reason. Jeff, take it away. Hi, Jeff Lawton here, coming to you from Australia. And we have a question here about a um, part of the southwest um, where there is um, in deserted landscape, someone's diverted a river, and um, a legal diversion of a river has, to, has led to uh, large deposits of clay um, quite deep uh, that's killed trees and uh, made an area very awkward to work. Um, and uh, they're looking for a permaculture solution. Now, um, I don't know exactly what the property's like, but it uh, must be reasonably flat, must be reasonably low to flood. And um, clay is usually acid and somewhat airless, and therefore making anaerobic conditions which are acid. And deserts are usually alkaline. So um, it may be that not only are the trees smothered with uh, clay, and um, and it's built up around the trunks of the trees, and that's what's killed them. But also, it may be that it's changed the pH, um, and trees that like alkalinity have now got uh, a layer of a thick layer of of acid, water holding clay um, above them. So there would be it would be worth doing some pH tests, see if something's radically changed. Now. Um, Without actually seeing a map of the property, um, the first thing you consider here is to is to put in swales, reasonably large swales, that give you large mounds. Um, they say they can irrigate in a dry season, so you could uh, plant up on the mound with uh, hardy trees that like the particular local climatic conditions. And this, what will be an enhanced soil, having clay and the normal desert soil mixed together, um, and uh, to get an early establishment through drip irrigation in the dry period, and uh, of course you won't have to uh, irrigate when it's flooding, but the mound will be up above the flood, so you want a reasonable size mound, 
um, and you're going to have to gauge that to how much uh, water and, and deposition comes across the property. The other thing that you can consider um, is looking at where the flow enters and if there is an entry point to a swale once you've built it, uh, that you can put uh, a gabion um, swale entry point. So you can rock gabion the um, entrance to a swale if that's the, the end where the flow comes in and that'll mitigate a lot of the, the depositions into the swale and just merely flood it. Now there's another way you can go about this and that's your top swale could have a reverse mound. In other words, the mound is normally on the lower side of the swale trench. You put a quite large mound on the upper side of the swale trench and that becomes the flood buffer. You'll find that the, the trench will still flood um, as the landscape gets uh, inundated. But uh, the next swale can be the normal way round. So the top swale has, a, has a, a mound on the upper side of the trench being a flood buffer. The second and ongoing swales downhill can have the swale on the lower side as normal. Now you can plant the mound, of course, as normal and irrigate in a dry period, but you can also put uh, trees that don't mind being flooded for a period inside the trench. Now, in the end, what you're going to have is a mounded buffer with, which is treed, which will be an extra buffer, and your tree roots will absorb a lot of the water and the nutrient, and you'll start to get a very lush-looking contour-lined desert landscape. So you'll have contour tree belts um, running through the landscape, uh, which once established gives you a very fertile interswell um, if you want to opportunistically crop every now and again and, and carefully graze on long, um, um, stretched out grazing cycles. There you go. Next up, sticking in the world of permaculture, we have one for Ben Falk here on root cellars and lessons from actually building one. You got one, it worked, you like it, but how much did it cost and what would you have done differently? Je uh, ben, take it away. Hey guys, Ben Falk with Whole System Design. Great question about root cellar. What would you do differently? Such a good question to ask people how would they would do something differently. And also how many, how much things cost. I'm amazed when we have permaculture students, how many people don't ask those two things. I know this community would probably be a bit different, but we get a lot of people who are, you know, they're just kind of like, enamored with all the different things and they don't ask these these more uh, probing questions which are really important so a little bit of an aside but yes always ask wherever you go to learn just ask how people would do things differently if they say they wouldn't then you might want to just go somewhere else and ask questions because usually there's something you're going to want to do differently um so our root cellar um the biggest thing i would do differently is provide a, a direct way outside and that is because you want to let the cold October, November air in as much as possible, as quickly as possible. So you, a door to the outside is pretty key. I didn't have one to the outside for, for specific reasons um, due to practicality and access through our greenhouse, um, security, um, and, s and the way the grade is there, some other reasons. But um, it's harder for me because of that to cool the space down really quickly so I could open the door to the greenhouse and then open the door to the root cellar but then I'm doing the opposite direction I want to go with my greenhouse 
So um, I have vents, and I put in a lot of them, like four or five, and I open those up, and they have stack effect, and that helps, but it's not as good as opening a big door and then also having a vertical stack effect place for the air to get out so you have convection. Um, now, if you do do a door to the outside, which, again, I would recommend, you have to you know, pest-proof that really well. So you, I would probably do like a layer of hardware cloth with lots of supporting wood and then a layer of window screen. That's all going to reduce your ventilation. Even window screen does a lot, but you got to keep animals out of it. Um, I didn't worry about humidity much at all because some humidity is great. I feel like you can just manage the humidity at the bin level really easily, so I'm not too worried. And when I say at the bin level, I mean like how you put the food in there. You put them in five-gallon buckets or rubber-made containers or whatever's handy, old metal bins. It doesn't really matter. Crates. So the stuff that doesn't want to be very humid. Ours happens to be very humid because our ground is really wet in general here, and the site where the greenhouse is happens to be a pretty moist area. Um, And so I put things like cabbage, which don't want to be moist – they're not roots in dry planter shavings, which I generate in my wood shop. And I can replace those twice a winter and get a long, long storage out of them. Like I can get months, like four plus months out of cabbage, which is pretty good. Um, the potatoes, carrots, um, kohlrabi, radishes, you name it, all the roots love the humidity. So that's fine. Um, my humidity is pretty high. I mean, stuff kind of gets like mildewy in there after a while. The shavings, you know, I want to get everything out of there in the spring. So maybe if I did it again, I would say, well, I'd want a little lower humidity. And I can always, you can always moisten bins with like a spray bottle. That's easy. Um, so I'd say maybe trend towards drier than wetter because you can always add moisture, I think, more easily than drying. You can run a dehumidifier, but then that's totally active. It's going to break. It's costing you money. It's costing you energy. So... Passive is best. I think it's easier to passively add humidity, at least in the climates I run in. Um, so, but how would I actually be, have it drier if I did it again? Not really that easily. I mean, I used some um, foundation waterproofing. I have a lot of gravel in there. There is foundation drainage, of course. So I'd do all that again, but it's still pretty moist. So I don't know. It works very well. Um, but the door thing is big. Um, I'd say that's the long short of it. I do really like that the top doesn't have many feet of soil on it because it only has a foot with two inches of foam below that, right on top of the root cellar. And then I would chip that because I had some nursery there. That freezes solid over most winters. So then that is a sweet, huge block of ice, which carries the cold into the spring longer. So that's kind of cool. Didn't really plan for that but that works out well and the thing doesn't freeze i think if you're buried at least three full solid sides three and a half you know depending on your climate you don't have to worry about freezing too much but you definitely can't have your root cellar freeze because then you're not storing food for very long once it thaws um unless you can keep it frozen which you can't so uh yeah good luck next up gary collins talking to us about Kind of bodily, long-term chronic injury from standing repetitive motion. This is something I know more about than I want to talk about. Uh, Gary, take it away. Hey, everyone. This is Gary Collins, creator of the SimpleLifeNow.com. And make sure to check out my new podcast, guys, if you haven't, and share it. Your Better Life. Again, Your Better Life. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, everywhere. Check it out. Um, today... 
about dealing with pain and issues, chronic inflammation with a job with repetitive motion and being on your feet, you know, 52 hours a, a week. Uh, what's the solution to that? Um, to be honest is to get another job. I know people probably don't want to hear that. Um, but if you continue to do this long term, there's nothing I'm going to tell you that's going to help long term a great deal. I, it's, it's basically putting a bandaid on it, but we can do that. So let's talk about that as leaving your job may not be realistic. And I understand that I've done similar jobs that tore my body to shreds. So this is coming from, this is coming from a, a experience. You know, I grew up very rural, started working at 13, doing menial labor jobs, got injuries from them. So it's a decision you have to make when it comes to supplementation. The easiest way to deal with it is fish oil, turmeric, take a good, well-rounded multivitamin, not pitching my own products, but I've been selling my own supplement line for years and years. Jack has used it. I've been around forever, um, and I carry all those products. When it comes to that, that will help with the inflammation to a point, and if you start getting tendonitis, you can also use... Uh, you know, there's a few things, but glucosamine chondroitin is probably the best. It takes a while. I've talked about this many times, four to six weeks to see if it's going to work. It doesn't work for everyone. Also, some proactive things you can do is if you want to do it, a massage chair. Believe it or not, they're expensive. Uh, I had one for years and years and I finally got rid of it. Uh, got sick of hauling it around back in the day. My friend still has it and still uses it all the time. They're, they're fantastic. You go home and sit in the thing and it massages your back and your calves and just helps you just kind of unwind. They're expensive. Um, but also something you can do is go to um, get get a massage, find a good massage therapist, and also acupuncturist. Thing is, you got to regularly do it. You have to do it at least once a week. Most people will do it two to three times a week. It's going to be expensive again. So these options are not, you know, easy or, or, or free. You know, and another thing is make sure you stay physically active. I know even during, uh, you know, long work weeks, it's difficult. And also try and if you can take a break, you know, sit down for 10, 15 minutes. Stretch is a huge one. Quick stretches, nothing crazy. Uh, you know, just limber up, shake it out, you know, roll your neck a little bit, do some, uh, you know, do some basic, uh, leg stretches, calf stretches, ankle stretches, you know, just kind of limber things up a little bit. Maybe go for a walk, get the blood flowing, get it, get it to those extremities to help with, uh, some of that inflammation. That's the best advice I can get. I hope that helps. And everyone, again, thesimplelifenow.com. So the one addition that I'll throw into that, and it's not cheap either, but it generally would be something that, let's say, everybody in a household would enjoy. And if done right, and you, if you don't take it with you, and most people generally don't even know you can, would increase the value of a property when integrated to a property is a hot tub. Uh, hydrotherapy is incredible for joints and back and neck and, and making the body feel better. And I actually think out of all the things that Gary mentioned, the one that probably has the 
the longest effect in actually being therapeutic and actually instead of just being the band-aid is probably hydrotherapy. And I'll tell you a little secret. This is this is a this is a thing here that'll that'll will pay for the price of admission today and then some if your state has it. Because you know, you're usually talking several thousand dollars or more. And even though sales tax isn't a huge expense for most of us, when you start going into multi thousand dollar items, sales tax adds up. In many states, Texas definitely, if you get a letter from your doctor that states there's a medical reason for you to have a hot tub, you can not pay the sales tax. So when we bought ours, we didn't pay sales tax on it. And that saved us, I think, a couple hundred bucks, something like that. It was enough that when my wife told me about it, I was like, oh, I care. So it, was, it wasn't 20 bucks because I would have been like, that's not, I, would, I wouldn't have remembered it by now. But uh, it was significant. So that's a little thing to add on to that. Uh, next up, I got one from John Pugliano. He's going to talk to us about a situation a guy's in where he did really good on Tesla stock. He wants to know, should I bail, take my money and run? And also, he's going to talk to us about coronavirus from a different uh, standpoint, and one that I'm actually more concerned about, and that is the economic impact. Hey, TSP, we've got several related questions. Let's see how many answers we can get in. The first couple questions all deal with Tesla. Tesla's stock is in a mania right now, and that's nothing to degrade the company or the stock or even the people that are purchasing it. I use that word as nothing more than a descriptive term because that's specifically what Tesla stock is in right now. Stocks from time to time go through periods of mania where the price just astronomically goes up, in some cases for no apparent reason, and other times they get depressant and they drop like a rock. It's a fear and greed cycle, and it's just like a manic depressant personality that an individual would have, and it should be no surprise that the stock market goes through these type cycles because the price of a stock is nothing more than the interaction of millions and millions of people. And since people go through periods of fear and greed and manic depressive phases, it wouldn't surprise us that the stock market would do the same thing. So specifically to Tesla, you probably know, but just in case you don't pay attention, during this past summer, Tesla stock went through a depressant stage all the pundits and the talking heads came out, talked down the stock. There were rumors that the company could go insolvent, that Elon Musk wouldn't be able to roll over the sizable loans and debts that the company has, and that the quality on the cars was dropping, that they couldn't make production. Earlier in the year, the stock had been trading at near $400. Um, by May or June of 2019, the fear and panic got so high that the stock dropped down below $200, and traded in that range for several months until, guess what? None of the bad things the pundits talked about happened. Tesla didn't run out of money. They started to meet their production objectives. They opened their factory in China. As Tesla started making deliveries on the Model 3, well, people were happy with that, just like they had been with previous models. The more people that see the car, drive the car, own the car, they like it. They fall in love with it. They tell their friends. Those people then go out and buy Tesla stock. By the end of 2019, Tesla stock had broken through its old records. It was above $400. That drew more media attention. More people started talking about the price, seeing that it was going up. They wanted to get in on the action. There's fear of missing out. The excitement, the mania, and the greed starts to build. By mid-January, the price in the stock is over $500. 
By the end of January, it's at $600. And then this past week, it breaks through $900. And then boom, the price collapses and drops down into the you know mid to low $700. So what do you do? Buy, hold, sell? Well, first off, with the mania cycle that the stock is in right now, things like fundamentals or quality of the company, none of that really matters. Yes, Tesla makes amazing products. They have immense customer loyalty. And they have a lot of ovens in the fire, which are likely going to keep them in a key position going forward with electric cars and other products. They have really good battery technology. Their artificial intelligence and autonomous driving software and data is best in class. They own their own proprietary microchip that's the backbone of their autonomous driving program. So, you know, when it comes to autonomous vehicles and electric cars, they are definitely in the driver's seat. But that future potential does not necessarily justify the lofty price of the stock right now. And when a stock price shoots up this high, it's very likely that in a very symmetrical pattern, it retraces prices on the way down similar to the way it went up because as it was driven up on greed and mania, it drops like a rock on fear and depression. So from a probability standpoint, take a look at the chart, look at the past levels of support and resistance. If the price doesn't hold right now around $750, then the next level down is at about $640. And from there, you can see it stair-step down from around oh, $570 to $550, $530 to $510, $490 to $480, $410 to $430. And if it doesn't hold there, well, it could be all the way back down in the 300 levels. Now, I have no idea if the stock is going to go up from here or break back down, but history would tell you in probability that at this level, it likely put in a peak this week, and it's more likely to go down from here than up, at least over the short term. So what do you do if you own the stock? Well, Renato in Brazil, he says that he has 5% of his portfolio in Tesla stock. Well, Renato, you know, you could always just rebalance. Take a look at your portfolio Take some profits while Tesla is high. Get your overall position down to about 5%. If the stock goes down, that's fine. You, you made some profits. You still have a core position. And if you believe in the company, if you think it's going to go higher in the future, well, you still own that overall 5% of your portfolio in Tesla. Dustin in Oklahoma says he's been trading the stock for several years. He's been using stop losses on it. I don't know if he got shut out of this stock on this Wednesday when it dropped down on some $250, I think, in one day. And Dustin, if the stock drops down to some of these key support levels and holds there, you might want to buy back in. One thing that I, I personally don't like about stop losses, I don't use them, is that they cause you to get out of the stock at the worst possible time. When everybody is in a panic selling and everybody just like you has a stop loss in, that's why we see the action that we saw this past Wednesday on Tesla where you have a major drop in the price within, you know, a 40-minute period, you have a mini flash crash because everybody's stop losses get executed. I prefer just to have a mental target of where I want to sell the stock, and when it gets to that level, we're all walking around with smartphones in our pocket and a trading app on it. Just pull out the app and either buy or sell the stock at that point. Something else that you can use to defend your position is a protective put. In the case of Tesla and a stock that has this much volatility, that can get very expensive. I looked at one month in the money puts on Tesla, and I think they were somewhere in the range of about 15%.
So purchasing a protective put could get very expensive, but that's also a sign to you that the marketplace is, is putting a high probability that the price of the stock is likely to decline. And so again, you might want to consider taking profits. And since this stock has gone up two or three hundred percent over a period of a couple months, well, it makes sense to lock at least some of those profits in. And speaking of locking in profits and fear and greed cycles in the stock market, let me transition this. I'm running out of time here. Let me transition this into something else that we've seen take place here in the last couple of weeks, and that's the fear and panic over the coronavirus and how we saw the S&P 500 in mid-January being at a record high, and then the fear of the coronavirus comes in. The market dropped some 3.5%. The volatility in the VIX got up to close to 20 you had a lot of panic selling. If you go to Facebook, you can see a lot of people are in a panic. It's a discussion that's on everyone's mind that puts fear into people. The price of the stock market goes down. That makes more people fearful. We get back into this more into the manic depressant stage. And then boom, just like that, about three weeks into the panic over coronavirus, the fear seemed to start subsiding. The U.S. markets, the S&P in particular, goes up and hits another all-time record high. Now, will this hold? Should you buy or sell from here? Well, I don't know what's going to happen with the coronavirus, if things are going to get worse or not, if there's going to be another black swan event. But as I've been saying for a long time now, look at all the bad news in the headlines, whether it's trade wars and tariffs and impeachment and now the coronavirus. Consistently now, since November of 2016, the S&P 500 continues to move up and make record highs. For now, when I look at the underlying data in the U.S. economy, it looks like that trend's going to continue. Yes, there's going to be some bumps along the way. The market's going to pull down 3, 4, 5, maybe 10%. But then the cycle reverts itself and we go on to hit all-time record highs. You know, depending upon what we see with the political conditions this year, the S&P 500 could easily get above 3,400. But it's never a straight line up and it's always gut-wrenching when it starts to come down. Oh, hey, everybody. Thanks for your questions. This is John Pugliano of Investable Wealth and the Wealth Setting Podcast. All right. Next up, we're going to talk about something that I, I believe has been way over-focused on, uh, known as the 21-foot rule, which is the concept a guy with a knife inside 21 feet beats a guy with a gun. I'm going to give you Steve's response to this first and, and talking about the drill that goes along with it and what you can learn from it. I haven't heard it yet, so I'm going to listen to it, and I'm going to come back and point something out. Now, I'm, he might point out what I'm about to point out, but I've never heard anybody point it out other than me. Anyway, we'll, we'll see. Uh, Steve, what say you? Good evening, Jack and TSP listeners. This is Steve Wise, your retired law enforcement officer, answering your law enforcement-related questions. All right, this week we've got a question from Chris F. He asks, could you elaborate on the 21-foot rule in regards to people that carry neck knives, fixed blade knives on belt or in a boot, when interacting with LEO not in a traffic stop? Okay, uh, this is a deep topic, uh, but let's start by telling people what the quote-unquote 21-foot rule is. This is a concept that came out during the 1980s. It's sometimes called the uh, Truller Drill, T-U-E-L-L-E-R Drill. Uh, the idea is to built around the idea that if a person with a knife runs at an officer, that the reaction time needed to pull the gun, fire two center of mass 
shots or so is is so short that unless there is at least 21 feet of distance between the officer and the attacker, the attacker almost always will win the initial attack. Uh, I first heard of the topic when I read a book back uh, in the 1980s called Tactical Edge, Surviving High-Risk Patrol. Uh, the book, and uh, there was a future training video that came out on it uh, uh, that uh, was showing uh, officers being run at by persons with a knife. And and in that simulation, the officers sometimes would get their guns out of the holsters and sometimes they wouldn't. Uh, let me also say something about the book Tactical Edge. Um, it's a source of some controversial um, information also. There was a photo of an officer that was shot in that book, and the officer's gun is laying there on the ground next to him with the safety on. Uh, the picture is presented as, as being real, uh, and uh, it's staged that way in the book, but in fact, it's a staged picture. Uh, it never happened, yet most of us will still support the idea of nearing, never carrying a weapon with a safety on. And a lot of people trace their belief all the way back to that f- book and that photo. So let me say something about the quote-unquote um, rule. This is not a rule. It's a, it was simply a training exercise, and it was designed to show an officer the value of reactionary distance. When you try to take an action based on when somebody else tells you when to start, you're always going to be behind. It takes your brain a few nanoseconds to observe what's happening, process, and then take the appropriate response uh, to that particular situation. This is why when uh, when we have a running race and people line up to get into a race, the person telling you to start shouldn't be the person participating in the run. If the person yelling start is also running, they will be moving and they'll have the advantage when the word start happens. So any person reacting uh, after the word start will have a disadvantage. Uh, so the whole situation changes when the officer already has her gun out of their holster or the suspect doesn't have a weapon in their hands. This is one of the reasons why officers tend to get their guns out sooner and uh, than what some people might look at and say, well, that wasn't reasonable, um, because the, the officers sense some sort of danger, and they don't want to behind, be behind that reactionary curve. Uh, there's also another big fallacy behind this quote-unquote on 21-foot rule, and it actually blows it completely apart, it's, it's the fact that officers should never train to be static. I mean, you see a lot of officers on the range. They, they, all right, uh, when the target turns, fire three rounds, uh, center of mass, two, failure to stop drill. Uh, officers are trained that way for safety purposes, but officers should never be trained to do that all the time. They should be trained to get off the X, to move, change directions. Throw something at the person advancing at you. Like, you know, maybe you had your ticket book in your hand. You could toss it at them. Get something between you and the suspect. Uh, and, and this changes the entire situation. This is why it's not a rule. Remember where it started. It was a training exercise to teach officers about reaction distance. It was not designed to teach officers to stand in place and play quick draw. Now let's go back to the question. How does distance between an officer and a suspect with a a knife around their neck, waist, or boot, uh, how does that affect things? Well, the big thing here is that a knife that's not in the hand, thus there's time for the officer to react, is much longer. Thus, they could be closer than 21 feet. 
if the suspect's hands are around their waist, a weapon on the waist is certainly a lot closer to the suspect's hand. Or above their head, a knife around the neck would be faster to produce if they were to try to reach down the neck and try to grab it. And finally, uh, a knife in the boot. Well, unless you're down tying your shoes when the officers approach, uh, it's going to be a slow situation getting it out of the boot. So, you know, just this is just different ways of thinking about it. So when an officer sees a person that's armed with a knife, now you have to process the rest of the situation. It's no different uh, than any other situation. Uh, if a person had a gun on their hip, for example, and is open carrying, you know, there's... Is there an immediate threat here? So, you know, do we suspect the person is being involved in any other criminal activity? Uh, do we know this person? Do we know that they have a history of being violent? Um, maybe we don't know anything about them at all, and we're just seeing that person standing, standing there. Uh, or maybe we're getting a call because, oh, hey, somebody's standing on the corner that's armed. Or maybe we're getting the call that says, hey, this person was just involved in a verbal verbal or physical confrontation. All of these situations will change the way the officer reacts and, and how they should react. So if I see a person is just armed and there's no other factors, I wouldn't mind being very close to them at all. In fact, uh, uh, the assumption here is that most people are good-natured and won't attack unless pr- provoked. So, and And I'd like to talk to these people because... One of the things I try to talk people that are open carrying is try to convince them to carry concealed. Now, this could be a whole other topic for another show, and I know there's things about reaction time for concealed carry and everything. But if the situation involves a previous uh, verbal or physical violence, uh, then that person has a knife on their waist or around their neck or something, and, hey, they've already been in a fight with somebody, that's going to change the total circumstances. I'm going to have my weapon out. Maybe I'm going to have it hidden behind my leg or something like that while I'm trying to give verbal commands. I'm going to try to put something between me and the suspect, maybe a car or, you know, even a tree. You know, if the person does charge at me, I can step one side or the other of the tree and let them completely miss me. Um, you know, so there's different things to do there. I'm going to do things like uh, having more than one officer if possible. I'm going to stack things in my favor as much as possible. So just because a person is armed, whether it's a knife or a gun or whatever, doesn't necessarily make them dangerous. And um, and, and so I kind of hope that that answers Chris's question. He didn't really get into more details about what else might be in there, but I wanted to make sure I explained what this 21-foot quote-unquote rule is. It's, in fact, a training exercise. It's not a rule. It doesn't say you can automatically shoot somebody if they're within 21 feet and have a knife. Um, so, you know, I've heard people say that before. No, that's doesn't, that's not what it means. So hopefully officers or anyone that carries a weapon will receive dynamic training that forces them to get off the X and then they'll be better prepared for what might happen. So I'm going to send it back to you, Jack. So there's two things I want to, three things I want to say. First, it was going over the drill itself and the limitations of it and how it is, so misunderstood. Steve did a great job on it. I still have one more addition on that. That if people think about it, it totally changes the entire perspective. Um, the second thing, though, is on the, the overall topic of dealing with officers when you're armed with a knife. I have seen some things that cops have done that have made my blood boil and have made me use words that I don't even use very often, and I use words that I don't use on the air a lot. Um, I have seen some real abuses, but 
and here's the important, the but. In almost every instance, note I did not say I did not say every instance. In almost every instance, where an officer has shot somebody and killed them or shot them and injured them, in some sort of situation where, where escalation went beyond where it should have, almost every situation, not every situation, just before people start losing their mind, almost. One more F in time, because I know I'm going to hear from you people that just hate all cops. Almost every situation, the person that ended up getting shot did something to escalate the situation. Now, I do not deal with police officers by groveling to them and, and, and treating them like they're better than me. What I do not do is agitate a situation. This is what you have to accept when you're dealing with a cop. You have an armed individual with the authority of the state in front of you that will probably get away with using force on you even if they shouldn't. Whether you like that or not, that's what you have. So what you would want to do in that situation is in any situation where you're dealing with an armed individual that has a tactical advantage over you, what would you do if you weren't stupid? You would de-escalate. That's what officers should be doing, and to be fair, many of them, that's what their approach to almost any altercation is to de-escalate. So, if you do what an officer asks you to do, assuming it is a reasonable request and a lawful request, then generally you're not going to have a problem. And what I've found with officers is pretty quickly they'll ask you, do you have any guns, knives, anything on you? And when you say, yes, I have a knife in my, my front pocket, I have a neck knife on me or something like that, they're going to tell you to leave it where it is, so they're going to ask you to remove it and put it somewhere or something like that. And immediately what I've noticed in every interaction I've ever had is any any level that seems like they're actually concerned drops because people that mean to harm you that have a, a weapon on them generally are not real quick to be honest with you about the fact that they do. So I think that de-escalates it. I'll leave it at that on that part of it. The other part of it, though, that I think is very important with this whole 21-foot rule, inside 21 feet, the knife rule wins, and blah, blah, blah. All the shit that people do with this damn taller drill involves, here's a guy standing there with a gun in a holster, and a guy with a knife pulls a knife out runs, ah! like some kind of Hassan chop on freaking Indiana Jones or something. And then the cop's trying to get the gun out or whatever. And I completely agree with get off the X, move. Sometimes just moving backwards. Three or four steps backwards buys two, three seconds of reaction time. Backwards to the side behind something, etc., using other things, whatever. And not only relying on the gun, you have another hand, right? Um, understanding how to deal with a person with a knife, etc., all of that. But let's just try something here. You take your knife... Put it in your sheath, and we'll use a rubber training knife so that we can actually go full speed. And then we're going to do the same drill. I'm going to use an airsoft gun, and we'll put face protection on you so I don't blow your eyeballs out. And we're going to do the same drill, except guess what? I get to go first with the gun. You see how that works? The reason this even happens is initiative. And that's what Steve was explaining, but I've never heard anybody just... Just Let's just try it the other way. Inside 21 feet, the guy with the knife wins. Okay, the guy with the gun, shoot him. That's, that's what, because it ain't even about 21 feet. You want to know how the guy with the knife wins? 
When you're armed, you have a gun on you, and you know how to use it or anything. When you're not worried about him, he walks up behind you and sticks it in your kidneys from behind. And you're bleeding out before you even knew the knife was there. Because in the words of Doug Marcardia, who's probably one of the best martial artists, and probably the best man with a knife I've ever seen, a blade is not meant to be seen, it is meant to be felt. So this entire line of thinking revolves around the concept of a guy with a knife running at somebody like a Hassan Chop guy attacking somebody with a broadsword in the middle of a battlefield screaming and yelling and bah! like some kind of crazy person throwing that person off, causing the mind to lock up, creating that half second of delay. Next thing you know, there's a blade in your chest. And can that happen? Yeah. But the guy with a gun can do it. The guy can, somebody, you're walking down the road and somebody wants you dead and they're driving a car. They run you over, you're dead. We have totally twisted this one to just be retarded and we need to stop. All right, I've said enough. Let's go on about my segment today, which is going to be brief because I had a lot of segments today and I want to be the show be too long. I want to talk about you, I want to talk to you about keto just for a minute here. So I went serious keto in August last year. I've lost over 40, over 45 pounds total. Uh, I look like a different human being, and I feel like a different human being, and in many ways I am a different human being. I put out a picture today on Facebook just because I, I happened to walk by my, my mirror, and I'm not big on selfies and shit like that. You guys have followed me. Some of you have been following me for 12 years on social media. And you know, I seldom actually post pictures of myself and selfies maybe maybe six in 12 years, and usually because I got my hair cut, and I think it's funny to look at me before and after a haircut. Um, that's really about it. But I, I walked by the mirror today and I went, wow. And the main reason it happened is last night, Dorothy was looking at some videos and pictures from our past vacations. Um, and there were some pictures for me from like a profile, especially where you're not posing, you're not where there's no way to hide what you're doing, you're not thinking about everything, literally is just left hanging out. And I was like, oh my God. And when I saw myself in the mirror today as I walked by it, I was like, That is not the same man. I mean, I know it's the same man because it's me, but that's not the same man. That's not the same person. And I have been living on the food that the government says will kill you. And it's not killing me. It's keeping me alive. It's making me, I'm going to live longer because of it. So I put that picture up, but for like the past two months, I have not been doing what I did to get where I am. What I've been doing is what most people Do and call keto, which is I am living mostly on fat. I'm getting the majority of my calories from, from good quality fats and protein, but mostly fat. And I'm keeping my carbohydrates about 24 net carbs a day and under. And for my diet, even though everybody says 20, for my diet and my size and what have you, 24, 28 is fine to stay in, in, in a state of ketosis most of the time. Um, I am drinking a lot less than I ever drank in, uh, than I have for a long time. To give you an idea of how little I'm drinking compared to the way I used to drink, especially when it comes to something like beer, uh, most people that know me know I'm from central Pennsylvania, and I love Yingling. I grew up as a teenager drinking Yingling at bush parties. And when I moved to Texas, no more Yingling. And so when people come here, they bring me Yingling. Well, the last workshop, let, minus you know, not counting what got put in the coolers and drank, I, I when, when everybody left, I had three full cases of Yingling. That was in November. It is now February. I have a case and a half. And that's kind of if I'm going to drink a beer and Yingling's around, I'm going to. I mean, that should put it in perspective. And that's including sharing some and cooking with some, etc. So 
I haven't been drinking a lot, even even in the last couple of months. I haven't been drinking very much. You know, I have a drink or two here and there. Um, but I have been drinking. Where when I was completely strict, I was maybe having one drink a week. And I was monitoring my cal caloric intake, running a very spe specified deficit on calories in addition to the high-fat, moderate-protein, low-carb diet. And basically, I've been eating as much as I want, but sticking to very, very low carb for two months. This is what's happened. I've lost very little additional weight, but I've gained none. I have had no trouble doing it whatsoever, and it's freed me up to when I want to cook, I just cook. And all I do is just add up the carbs. And I'm not sitting there on my app on my phone. To, but what it's taught me is, number one, you can live this way and you can maintain your weight with it. And that's great. But if you want to set goals and continue to drop weight, and I'd like to drop about another 10 pounds. And I actually feel like if I dropped 20, I would start to look bad the other direction. Like about 10 pounds, that's about what, that's about what's left. And I think if I kept doing what I was doing now for another year, I'd probably end that year losing those 10 pounds. What I plan on doing is when I come back from Belton, I'm going to go ultra-religious again, track everything for about 60 days. Try to take off that last 10 pounds and maybe you know maybe 12-ish, somewhere in there, and then find that, that, that point. And I, I, right now, I think I'd be fine if I did that, but I just I want to do better and, and go on from there. And it's been very encouraging to, for about a two-month period now, live normal, if you want to call it that, but just keto, and not gain anything back. And in my disagreements with people that say you can eat all you want, I have now convinced myself that I'm right by, by doing it both ways. I think when you're really, really overweight, you can ignore calories, go full keto, and probably lose weight to a point, and you will plateau. I think when you get to a weight, If you stay strict keto, even if you don't limit caloric intake, you can maintain a weight. If you have weight loss goals beyond that first big flush of, you know, let's say 10, 20%, and, you know, because what I'm talking about is there's so many people walking around doing keto. They've been doing keto for years. I lost 30 pounds two years ago. Two years ago. Ain't lost nothing in the last two years. Not gained any. Staying, you don't need to count calories, but they're still 20, 30 pounds overweight. They're, what, they're so much better off than they were, don't get me wrong, but reaching that goal weight isn't going to happen without the additional discipline. And when you're doing it that way, there's always those days that your, your carbs are higher than you really think, etc. And then the keto treats come, and then you end up with your know, extra thousand calories, and that's not going to happen. Again, I am convinced That what I said before was true, that like a person that's like 175 pounds, and that's a good weight for them, and they, they're, they're on keto, they probably can eat almost, they can probably eat till they're ready to pop. And it's going to be very difficult maintaining the keto ratio and putting on weight. It's almost not going to happen. And if they do, it's going to be muscular. And th that's the other thing that I've noticed now, and I think it's one of those benefits that you don't see out of keto in the beginning. I look like I've been hitting the gym. I haven't. I've not been getting the exercise that I was, you know, in the fall because it's cold out, the days are shorter, etc. Um, I'm getting some exercise, but not the amount I was getting. And yet, 
my arms are more toned. My chest is more toned. When I'm, when I'm sitting at night and I'm like, you know, wearing my shorts or whatever, and I put my hand out on my leg, it's like somebody else's leg. How lean and trim. I've never felt that I've had, carried a lot of weight on my legs, but it's, it, it, it's almost like it's somebody else's leg. Lean, toned, and the fat is gone. And I don't say this to say, oh, look what I did. My God, I, there's so many of you guys that I've met that I want this for. I want you to have this too. And I'm not picking on you or mocking you. It's not that you know, you're not good enough because of where you are. It's that I want you to have what I have. I want you to live longer. I don't want you ending up have an organ damage because you're running around with type 2 diabetes or right on the edge of it. I don't want you living, you know, the best years of your life with metabolic syndrome. You know, I don't want you spending huge amounts of money on diabetic medication or insulin when you don't have to. And so much has changed beyond the weight. One of the things that changed, I used to have, I had 10, 20 years of issues with cracked heels. And, you know, my feet look like they're the feet of a younger man. I know I'm not like, oh, look at my feet. My feet are wonderful. I, that's not the point. My point is that I'm not having to put lotion on my feet at night to keep my heels from cracking and hurting. You know, and eventually you push yourself over to type 2 diabetes, which I was right on the edge of when I started this. I wasn't there, but I was right on the edge of it. In fact, I bet you I was because I was doing it for two weeks before I got my blood work done. And I was probably just over, and it probably it was probably just enough to pull me just back to the other side. But you go full-blown with it, and you have those cracked feet. Next thing you know, you're losing parts of your feet, and you're getting infections. And a lot of you that are listening to me, I know, because I've met so many of you over the years and whatever, you know, you're 10, 15 years younger than me. It will be easier now than it will be if you wait till as long as I did. And I wasn't that far away from it. I've always been kind of toward the low-carb side of things, etc., but this is, boy, this is something I really want to drive home today before I wrap up when it comes to keto. You don't sort of do keto, and you don't sort of do low-carb. If you're eating three-quarters of your calories from fat and you're eating high-carbohydrate, you will not only gain weight, you will kill yourself. Those two things do not go together. I believe you can. I just think it's a lot more difficult, and it is a lot less effective for a lot less people, right? But you can do a low-fat diet and be relatively healthy. If you, if you work everything out and do it right, and for some people it works, you can be a vegetarian and be healthy. I don't think there's many very healthy vegans. I think it's, it is a, a terrible way to live, honestly. If you want to do it, go ahead. But I think you can be a healthy vegetarian because of nutrient density and things like that. And I know you can be healthy living on a primarily meat-based diet. I know you can because I'm proof of it. And I know way too many people that are proof of it for it to not be true. But the two things, the high carbohydrate and the high fat, do not, do not, do not, do not go together. It is the worst of the worst. It is gas on the fire. Because the two combined will let you eat way more food than you could ever eat either way without it. You're only going to eat so much bread if you don't have butter. 
but you're only going to eat so much butter if you don't have bread to wrap around it. All right? Said my piece, but, man, take a look at the before and after photo of me. Well, one's with me and Dorothy on the beach, and she can barely get her arms around me. And the other one's today. And if there's been anything holding you back from this, give it 60 days. Give it 60 days, and all the people that tell you why you shouldn't, you will have the following words for them, and you're going to hear a, worm, a word that rhymes with duck that some of you really don't like, but it's the only way to explain how it's going to be. What you're going to have to say to people like that after 60 days of doing this is shut the fuck up. Bluntly. Just shut the fuck up. You do you, I'll do me. And I really call on you to consider doing you the right way and taking this step for you in your life. That's my PSA of the week. With that, let's wrap things up with a great song uh, from Queen. Actually, no, we got our, our item of the day. Hey, I almost forgot. I got a new one for you today, one I haven't covered alone before. I've actually, uh, a lot of y'all have actually bought this product, but I've been doing a lot of the seed starting stuff with Cracky Hydroponics and all. And my item of the day today is the four shelf indoor mini greenhouse. So this thing is awesome. Uh, there's actually quite a few different companies that are selling the exact same product. This is the one that's, I have the one listed today. It's currently the least. It's like 34 bucks. Um, really easy to put together. I describe as a half beer job. There's a ton of little parts to it because there's, you know, sticks and racks and all. And when you first take it out of the box, you're like, how did all that fit in that box? Is there, what, where did, I, did somebody drop off half another box or something? Like, it's, but then when you go to put it together, it's like, well, there's the long ones and the short ones, the long ones go here. If you can put Tinker Toys together, you can put it together. It's a half beer job and maybe where did I put that thing job, but it's not. There's no cuss words and there's no six packs involved to put this together. Um, it just for the price is one of, you can't build something out of wood or something like that for less money than this thing costs. It's lightweight. It's easy to move around. It's got the greenhouse cover for it. And I wanted to point a couple things out about it. Uh, number one, even if you do not want to do the hydroponic thing, and you just want to use a standard soil, like six-packs or nine-packs or whatever, it, It's that this and the Barina Lights is just awesome way to go. Number two, if you're doing that, the way the shelves are, if you buy the one that I'm linked to or any of the ones that are the same footprint, because some of them are smaller, this, this particular size, two 10-20 trays, which are your standard size plant trays, fit on each shelf, long ways, front to back. They overlap about, or they overhang about an inch and a half on the front and an inch and a half on the back. The plastic will still close around them. It's a little snug, but they'll still close. Um, also, the park's biodome for seed starting will fit the shelves with the lights. It will still slide in there. You just have to take it out to take the lid off. Anyway, I have all the stuff linked and all the explanations in the write-up today, and you can help us whenever you shop online by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. For you guys starting plants, I really encourage you when you're starting your plants to put your lights on an 18-6 light cycle. Here's why. A lot of people do 12-12 or 10-14. So that's how long. The first number is how long you're on. Second number is how long you're off. So if you're in 18-6, your lights are on 18 hours and off for six. You want your plants to get a break. It's not natural for light to be heavy intense on a plant 24 hours a day. So we need a break. But by going 18, we get a long enough break, and we get a huge bump. Consider this. If you round, put your plants under lights from seed for 28 days at 12 hours, that's 336 hours. If we were to say, you know, 10-hour day, 
It's like 33 10-hour days happening in 28 days because you get the extra time, two hours a day. If we go 28 days at 18 hours, we get 504 hours. That's like 50 10-hour days in 28 days. That's almost 20 days more than the 12-12 the, the, the cycle. So I included that in this write-up, and I think if you look at how well my plants are doing, that's part of why. The reason I say for seed starting, During vegetative growth, this does no harm to the plant. The plant grows like crazy with vegetative growth. When you move into flowering and fruiting, you want to shorten the light cycle. So if you're growing indoors under lights and you're trying to do peppers, tomatoes, or other things that flower, I'm just going to say you want to look up fl forcing flowering and all that other stuff and change your cycle. If all you're doing is you want a lot of root mass and, and vegetative mass so that when you transplant, you're going to have a good started plant run the 18.6. And some people have asked me about that and said, well, how does the plant respond when it goes out into the, the wild, wild world of, of regular lighting cycles? It's fine. If you really, really want to worry about that, then drop it to, to you know, 14 over a couple days and then 12 a couple days and then put it out if you really, really want to. But you don't have to. I've had no issues whatsoever in all the years I've done indoor seed starting uh, with that light cycle. And 18.6 has always been the one that's given me the most growth and the most impressive growth uh, on the vegetative cycle. All right, with that, let's wrap things up. Again, our song of the day today as we wrap up the week is by Queen, and it's called Spread Your Wings. This is probably, John Adams said it's one of his favorite Queen songs, one of mine too. This is probably the most popular Queen song with Queen fans that's not a hit. Everybody loves it, but for some reason it didn't sell enough to be, you know, officially a hit. Uh, and that probably might have a lot to do with the way things were done back in the 70s when this song came out versus today. I think the, the modern world of digital music, this song would have been more likely a hit today if Queen was a modern band than the band they were in the 60s, 70s, 80s. Um, as always, Freddie Mercury is just so on point with the vocals in this. This is an interesting song, though. I remember the first time I heard it. When you listen to this song, it's the story of a man that's about to break out and go live a different life. But it's really easy to listen to it at first and think, is this guy going to kill himself? I mean, it, 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 it sounds like you're coming up to a fork in the road, and this guy might be contemplating, sui contemplating suicide. And I think if you listen to the, the words, it's not. But it, it has this quality that a lot of movies do where you see like the protagonist and you're like oh no and then it's a juxtaposition and they're going to trick you and it ends up being a big breakout in fact the movie that it makes me think of in a lot of ways it has this, even though it's a totally different story it has the same kind of emotional feel to it is Shawshank Redemption if you've ever seen Shawshank Redemption the, the protagonist um, Andy you know he ends up in the same place that a, another Con ended up on probation, or I'm sorry, uh, not not Andy, um, the the, the uh, Morgan Freeman's character. He ends up in the same place that the uh, a prior guy got out on probation and killed himself. In, in addition, the protagonist Andy, the day before he breaks out of the prison, you know, he asks somebody to get him a piece of rope and stuff like that, and they think he's going to kill himself in it. He, he ends up gone. He done hauled ass and, and went to Mexico. And Morgan's Freeman character, Red in the show, he, he ends up at the end of the movie going down to Mexico to meet him. And you, you kind of have that feeling that both of them might be about to end their life, but they're really about to take that big step and break out. 
That's what I think they were going for with this song. It's what I got out of it anyway. It's a great song for a Friday. And it's a great song for a lot of y'all that are not quite living the life that you want. If you really want to live the white life you want, you got to spread your wings, you got to take the shot, you got to jump. With that, it's been Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Survival Podcast.